Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this discussion, Jim Jordan is going to continue his discussion of the line of Edom, which we started last week. Before we jump in, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked there in the show notes, as well as subscribe to our weekly newsletter, In Medias Race. And when you sign up for In Medias Race, you will receive a free ebook from Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Genesis and the line of Esau. These are the beginnings of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Alon the Hittite, and Aholabama, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Sivon the Hittite, and Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, Ishmael, and sister of Nebaiot. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimath bore Ruel, Aholabama bore Jeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. We did all that last week. Just let me remind you that Esau's wives, their names are given definitions, Esau's sons. We have five sons, five in the Bible is the number of a hand, a number of power, and indicates the strength that he has, and then things grow from this. Esau develops into a nation before Israel does, and that development is what we're looking at in this chapter. And then we have these significant verses here in verses 6 to 8. They're all significant, but this is very interesting. Esau took his wives, his sons and daughters, and all the persons in his household, as well as his livestock, all his animals, all acquisitions that he gained in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from Jacob, his brother, for their property was too much for them to settle together. The land of their sojourning would not support them on account of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir, Esau, that is, Edom. And we saw last time that this parallels the statement that Jacob took his sons and daughters and all the people in his household and his livestock and his animals that he had gained in the land of Paddan Aram and came back into the land of Canaan. So what Jacob acquires from the Gentiles and brings into the land of Canaan is now reversed. Esau acquires things in the land of promise but takes it away. We can almost see that as a picture of evangelism on the one hand and apostasy on the other. One thing that is important, and that we spoke of, is that it looked as if Esau was going to get to inherit the land of promise, and Jacob was going to be driven out. Jacob was gone for 20 years, and Esau was back there with Isaac and Rebekah and having everything. But now, as it turns out, eventually God's promises come true, although they don't seem to be coming true at the beginning. And eventually, the righteous inherit and the wicked are dispossessed. It is a theme in the Bible that the wicked get there first. It's set out in Genesis chapter 4 that the first city was built by Cain. The first musician was Jubal. The first agriculturalist was Jabal. The first bronze worker was Tubal Cain. The first poet was Lamech. But their culture, though it springs up like a mushroom, doesn't last. Our culture, though it takes much longer to grow, does last. The last city is Jerusalem. The last music is the Levites in the temple. The last poems are the Psalms, which endure forever, and so forth and so on. 
Then we also saw that there's a parallel to Lot here. This statement, their property was too much for them to settle together, is almost identical to chapter 13, verse 6, where it says Lot had to move away from Abraham because the property was too much for them to settle together. And Lot moves away to Sodom. Esau moves away to Seir. So Esau becomes rather like Sodom in history. And that also becomes a type. We mentioned this phrase, hill country. Hill country is like the high places, which are bad, and also like Mount Zion. Esau moving to Seir is moving up into hill country, but at the same time that happens, Jacob is going to be going down to Egypt, which is lowland. But eventually, Jacob will come to the high ground of the land of Canaan, which is for the hill country of the Malachites and all this other hill country. So, again, Esau gets there first, then Jacob. And that's how this chapter is being set out. 9 and 10 then kind of starts things up again, having told us this. These are the begettings of Esau, the tribal father of Adam, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of the sons of Esau, Eliphaz, son of Ada, Esau's wife. Ruel, son of Basimath, Esau's wife. Now we get grandsons. We get enough to get a significant number. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Sepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. And verse 12, Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, son of Esau, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Now we've got to remember Timnah here. We'll find out who she is in a little while. But remember, her name is mentioned particularly. Eliphaz's wife is not named. We don't know who he was married to, who the mother of Teman, Omar, Tsepho, Gatam, and Kenaz was, but we know that Timnah was the name of an unendowed slave wife, and she gave birth to Amalek, and the Amalekites, of course, are very important in history. So we have six grandsons here. Then in verse 13, these are the sons of Ruel, Nahad and Zerah, Shammah and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, fragrant Esau's wife. So we have four there. And then we have the sons of Aholabama, but no grandsons. These are the sons of Aholabama, daughter of Ana, granddaughter of Tsivon, Esau's wife. She bore Yehush, Yalam, and Korah to Esau. That much we have. Well, this gives us 11 grandsons. If we add 11 to the three that are actually sons of Aholabama, we get 13. 10 plus 3 is 13. And that leads us forward to the next paragraph, and this is where we left off last time. We've moved from five sons, which is strength, to 13 sons and grandsons that are listed in the text, which is the number of the tribes of Israel at the end of Genesis. Israel consists of 13 tribes, because Joseph is divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So at the end of Genesis, we'll have 13 tribes, and we have 13 sons and grandsons listed here just as persons. But now we move into discussion of their clans or families or chiefs as separate groupings, sheikdoms. Verse 15, these are the sheikdoms of Esau's sons. The sons of Aliphaz, Esau's firstborns, are Sheik Taman, and Sheik Omar, and Sheik Tsepho, and Sheik Kenaz, Sheik Korah, Sheik Gatam, and Sheik Amalek. These are the Sheiks from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They are sons of Ada. 
And these are the children of Ruel, Esau's sons, Sheik Nahat, Sheik Zerah, Sheik Shammah, and Sheik Mizah. And these are the Sheikdoms from Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the children of Basimath, Esau's wife. And these are the children of Aholabama, Esau's wife, Sheik Reuesh, and Sheik Yalam, and Sheik Korah. These are the Sheikdoms from Aholabama, daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. And these are the children of Esau, and these are their Sheikdoms. That is Edom. Now here's another section here. Closing off with his phrase, that is Edom, which closed off one of the earlier sections. Well, I translated this word, sheikdom. Your Bible may have clans, or families, or chiefs. We don't know exactly what this word means. It really occurs here in the Bible and almost nowhere else. It is significant that this term occurs 42 times in this pericope, in this chapter, which is 6 times 7, and that's a significant number composed of significant numbers, and the word is eluth, which is related to the word elef. Elef means thousand, and so eluth seems to mean chief of a thousand. So chief or sheik is probably a better translation than family or clan, but it's unclear, and the word may mean the leader, or it may mean the leader with his people. We've got a political division here. We're going clearly from more than just sons to sons who are presiding over groups of people. Where these groups of people come from, we find out in the next section. There are 14 such political divisions listed. They are from the sons, grandsons, and evidently at least one great-grandson. We have an extra name stuck in here in verse 16, Korah. His name had not shown up before. We have Esau. Genealogy looks like this. Esau. And then to Eliphaz, his son. And then we've got these six sons, Teman, Omar, Tsepho, and Kenaz. So we go to Kenaz. And then the next name in the list is Korah, who is not one of the grandsons of Esau, but is probably one of the sons of Kenaz. So that would seem to be the genealogy there. And, of course, we've got these other sons of Eliphaz listed out here. And then Korah added in. Well, we had Korah in, you get to 14. 14 is the number of tribes in Israel after they entered into the Promised Land because the tribe of Manasseh was divided. And, in fact, if you start to do this out, it's precisely parallel in some ways. If we go from Jacob to Joseph... And Joseph has Ephraim and Manasseh, and then Manasseh is divided into two groups. So we have the same four-generation implication here. Half the tribe of Manasseh lived basically here, and the other half lived on the other side of the Jordan. This side was called Machir in the Bible. So you have Transjordan, Manasseh, and Cisjordan, this side of Jordan, Manasseh. And they're two separate political units. That brings us up to 14. 14 tribal units in Israel. The Levites were scattered in the land, and then there were 13 geographical tribes. Twelve sons. Joseph is divided. Ephraim and Manasseh, that gives you 13. Manasseh is divided. That gives you 14. Well, Esau gets there first. Once again, we have political units now developing in Esau long before we're going to get to them in Jacob. Jacob's sons are not going to develop into political units 
with all their servants, several thousand people, they're going to go down into Egypt in the land of Goshen. They won't wind up having separate government, and after a while they'll be reduced to slavery. And the distinction between bloodline Israelites and their servants will gradually disappear during the century or so of slavery. And when they come out of Egypt, they'll still be tribal units, but for the first time, they will be able to function as tribal units. Well, here two centuries earlier, probably, Esau is already functioning in 14 tribal units. They get there first. Their kingdom is first. This whole chapter is a prophetic type of the history of Israel and a contrast with it because this is the counterfeit Israel. Remember that Esau is the counterfeit of Jacob. The counterfeit priest, counterfeit king, counterfeit prophet, counterfeit wise man. Everything is counterfeited. Well, now we bring into the side another story. The story of the Horites of Seir. And you read this and you say, why is this here? And who cares? Well, it's not hard to figure out why this is here. Because this is the land of Canaan that Esau conquered. Just as Israel later, much later, is going to conquer the land of Canaan and dispossess Horites, Hivites, Zamzamim, Zuzim, Zizamim, Malachites, Stalactites, Stalagmites, and all the others. They'll all be displaced by Israel when they come into the land or conquered and intermarried with, unfortunately. So Esau comes in, does the same thing with these Horites, a couple of centuries earlier. And we'll know exactly when this happened, or roughly, it happened almost right away. Because one of the princesses of the Horites was Timnah, concubine of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau. So this conquest took place while Eliphaz was still old enough to grab one of the princesses of Seir after they conquered them. Well, this conquest happens two centuries at least before Israel conquers the land of Canaan. Saul so does read it, verses 20 to 30. We should at least hear all these names. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the settled folk of the land. Lotan and Shoval and Sivon and Anna and Dishon and Etzer and Dishan. I, just, I won't read them in Hebrew today. We'll just settle for English sounds. These are Horite families, children of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Haman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. There you are. This is not some other Timnah. And these are the sons of Shoval, Alvin, and Manahat, and Eval, and Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Sivon, Aya, and Anna. This is the Anna who found the Yamim, the springs, in the wilderness, as he was tending the donkeys of Saibon, his father. Now, who cares? We want to be sure to know that there are two Annas here. Back in verse 21, the original princes were Lotan and Shoval and Saibon and Anna and the others. And then we come down, uh, one of Saibon's sons is named Anna. And this is the Anna, I want to make sure we understand this, this is the Anna, who found the springs in the wilderness while he was tending the donkeys that Sivon his father. Big deal. Who cares? Why is this here? Oh, I can tell you why it's here. You see, these were just family records on some clay tablet written in cuneiform, and the editor of Genesis just dumped them in whole hog, warts and all, even this information that 
Nobody knows about, nobody cares about, it's not interesting, but he just stuck it in here. That's the standard explanation. These are family records that were drawn from here and there and just stuck in unedited. And so you've got this extra information and all these names that nobody cares about. I don't think that's the case. That's not good enough as an explanation. Let's read further. We've got to get the whole passage here. These are the sons of Anna. This guy, the donkey finder who found springs in the wilderness. Dishon. And Aholabama was Anna's daughter. Now you notice that this old name, this Canaanite name, Aholabama, is now showing up again in here because by now the Edomites have married with them and conquered them. So we're getting Esau family names starting to show up in this third generation down. These are the sons of Dishon. Hemdan and Eshban and Yitran and Saron. And these are the sons of Esther, Bilhan and Zeavan and Achan. And these are the sons of Dishon, Uts and Aran. And these are Horite families, chiefdoms, the clans. We'll call them chiefs. Chief Lotan or Sheik. Sheik Lotan, Sheik Shoval, Sheik Saibon, Sheik Anna, Sheik Dishon, Sheik Esther, and Sheik Dishon. And these are the sheikdoms of the Horites according to the sheikdoms in the land of Seir. Well, they were all conquered. Deuteronomy 2, verse 12. Seth. Now in Seir, the Horites were formerly settled, but the children of Esau, Esau, dispossessed them, destroying them from before them and settling in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which Yahweh gave to them. Edomites displaced them. Here it says it destroyed them, but that is not to be understood as annihilating them or even driving them out. That's not what they did. They intermarried them. Among these, I've got down here, was Timnah, concubine of Eliphaz. The fact that she is a sister of one of the rulers of the Horites was a mere concubine indicates conquest. This is a princess. She had had a large dowry, but she comes into this marriage with no dowry and no protection because she's been conquered. So she's a second-class wife, a slave wife. Inhabitants or settled folks, verse 20, these were sons of Seir, the Horite, the settled folk of the land, it says here in Fox translation. It can mean a ruler. Again, this is a term that's not commonly found in the Bible. Whether it does or not, the men who are listed are clearly chieftains. They are the rulers, and that's made clear at the end of the passage where we return to a list of them, and they're called sheiks or chiefs. Well, now, the sons of God are intermarrying with the daughters of men. Of course, Esau is an apostate and his family is, so they don't care. And that's what was happening before the flood as well. They're intermarrying with them, as well as conquering them. And, of course, this is what Israel's going to do. We get to Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 2. They start out conquering the Canaanites and doing what God said. He said, wipe them all out, men, women, and children. Their time is up. I'm going to take them all to heaven or hell, wherever they're supposed to go. They're supposed to be removed from planet Earth, and just like capital punishment removes somebody from planet Earth and sends them up to the Supreme Court in heaven. So that's what's supposed to happen to all these people. Then we read that they started out doing that, and then they decided they didn't want to, and they intermarried with them, and they wound up fooling around with their gods. And that's exactly what Esau did 200 years earlier. Now what about honest springs in the wilderness? Well, as I said, we have to know this is Anna ben Simon, not the older Anna, in verse 21. What did he find in the wilderness? Well, it's not clear. Yamim. 
It refers to water of some kind, but whether it was a spring or a well or a geyser, nobody knows because this word doesn't recur in this form very much. It's a water word. You can hear the water in it. Yamim. Yam is the word for sea in the Bible. The yam sound is water. And so this is some kind of water. That much we know. Water in the wilderness. Well, why is this mentioned? Why is it stuck in here? Well, I think, again, it's because the theme of this passage is that the Edomites, Esau, those who are like Cain and build the first city, their culture comes first, their conquest of the land comes first, their multiplication out to 14 tribes comes first, everything comes first to them, but they eventually will not endure. When God's people come later, they will endure. Some things that obviously tie to this is that Yahweh will provide water in the wilderness for Israel later on. And again, Esau is pictured as finding water there first. This is in the wilderness. We find water in the wilderness. We're told who did it, like it's important. Well, get out of Egypt and we need to have water in the wilderness. Several instances of it. Water comes from the rock. Poison water is made sweet by throwing a tree into it. In the book of Numbers, we read they found a well and they sang a song to the well. Later on, water comes from a rock again when they speak to it. So this would seem to anticipate that. Then we can also say that Canaan is a land that flows with milk and honey, a land of streams watered by the rain of heaven, as we're told in Deuteronomy again and again. Israel will come to such water later on after Esau does. And then I think this is interesting too. Why are we told that he was pasturing the donkeys of his father? Well, later on, that's exactly what Saul is doing when Saul becomes king. And I just don't think it's an accident then that this information is included here. It's included so that when we get to Saul, we say, hmm, long ago, one of the chiefs of Seir and of Edom and of Esau was pasturing donkeys in the wilderness and found water and life there. What is Saul doing? Well, you remember in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, Saul leaves to search for missing she-asses for his father. And on the way, he meets Samuel. And he is born again by the Holy Spirit. Not in the fullest sense because he falls away, but in the sense that he's put into the vine and into the olive tree for a while before being broken back out again because he doesn't persevere. And the Spirit comes on him and he's anointed king while he is looking for donkeys. He is one who pastures donkeys and he is the first king. Well, Genesis 36 is going to move right. The next section here is to discuss kings. Kings in Edom before there were any kings in Israel. Verse 31. Our theme is made explicit once again. So, there's a hint here this guy, Anna, one of the royal members of Seir, probably not in a good position by this time, may well have been conquered by Edom by this time, but still an important man, told this business here. And then we move straight to the fact that there are kings in Edom. Saul, looking for donkeys, finds new life and a new calling, and he becomes the first king in Israel. Hence... Anticipations of the future, shadows of things to come in Esau first. Now we move to verses 31 to 39. Kings in Edom. 
We're told specifically, these ruled before there was any king from Israel. This might mean before Saul, or it might mean before David conquered Edom and became their king. In 2 Samuel 2, 13 and 14, we read that David conquered the Edomites, and then David became their king. So when we read this in verse 31, Now these are the kings who served as king in the land of Edom, before any king of the children of Israel served as king. This might mean before any Israelite served as king over Edom, that is before David, or it might mean before there was ever any king over Israel. It might mean before Abimelech became king there in Judges, but he generally isn't considered as really the first king of Israel because he was just king of a very small city-state area and not over the whole. So now we have kings. Let's listen to these kings. At least once in your life you have to hear all these names out loud. Verse 32. In Edom... Bela son of Beor was king. The name of his city was Dinhavah. When Bela died, Yovav, son of Zerah of Batra, became king in his stead. When Yovav died, Husham from the land of the Temanites became king in his stead. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, became king in his stead, who struck Midian in the territory of Moab, or Moab. And the name of his city was Avit. When Hadad died, Samla of Masrekah became king in his stead. When Samla died, Shaul, that is the same as the name Saul, Saul of Rehoboth by the river, became king in his stead. And when Saul died, Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, became king in his stead. And when Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadar became king in his stead. The name of his city was Pau, and the name of his wife, notice we got a wife here, was Mehidabel. Archie and Mehidabel. No, his name wasn't Archie, but there she is. Mehidabel, daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahav. What's going on here? Well, again, it's later passages in the Bible that explain to us why this is included here. This is all anticipating and setting us up for the history of Jacob later on. Recall that we have just read that kings are going to come from Jacob, and we saw that Benjamin is the son through which the first such king will come. That was in chapter 35. God says for the first time kings will come from you, and then Benjamin is born, and Benjamin is the ancestor of Saul. So we have just been told about that. Now we're told about kings in Edom. A second thing we can say is this is almost certainly a later insertion into the text of Genesis. If Joseph wrote Genesis, he didn't know about these kings. If Moses wrote Genesis or edited it, he wouldn't have known about all these kings. These kings almost certainly take us down to the time of Solomon. And so, under divine inspiration, Ezra or somebody finished this out and included all the information. Now we've got some interesting things here that are questionable but seem likely to me. The last king, Hadar, might also be Hadad, since the two letters are almost identical in Hebrew. Just let me show you that. If we write Hadar, it looks like this. If we write Hadad, it looks like this. The only difference between an R and a D is whether the line is square or slightly curved. And there is more than one place in the Bible where a given word can show up spelled either way with the same meaning. And so a number of scholars have suggested 
at the last name in this list in verse 39, Hadar, is the same as the Hadad, Hadad, who rebelled against Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, 14 to 22, I guess I won't read that for time considerations, but you can read it there. In the days of Solomon, after Solomon's sin, God raised up enemies against him, and one of them was Hadad, king of the Edomites. Hadad went down to Egypt, and he was educated there. And then, like Moses, he comes back up out of Egypt, and he delivers his people from Solomon and restores the nation of Edom, and he becomes a king. Now notice that this last king, Hadar or Hadad, we're told the name of his wife, Mehitabel. None of the others were told the name of the wife. Now, you contrast the judges in Israel. We don't know the names of the wives of the judges. But the kings in Israel, when we get to the kingdom, the kings of Judah particularly, and also many of the kings of Israel, we are told their wives almost every time. So-and-so became king, and his mother's name was such and such. I was a hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You got bad mamas, you got bad kings. You got bad fathers, you got bad sons. That's always pointed out who the wife is, who the mother is, who is the queen from the preceding generation. All of a sudden, we've got this completely unknown. We don't know who May Zahav was. We don't know who his son Matred was. We don't know where the city of Pau was. And we don't know anything more about Mehitabel. Those details don't really matter. We might be able to decipher their meaning and come up with somewhat of an allegorical or symbolic meaning from translating the names, but even that's not sure. But what we can say is, we have arrived at a time in history when we're given the name of the wife of this king. Well, we suggest then, those who spent time thinking about this, that we're coming down to the time in history when Israel has kings. Israel has kings and the wives are named, and we have kings in Edom, and their wives are named. Before this time in Israel, we had judges. Before this time in Edom, we had kings. But they were kings that were kind of like the judges and that were not told their wives' names. And they're also like the judges in another way, in that there's no dynasty here. These kings come from different cities. These aren't fathers and sons. That's why we're told the name of the city in each case. Bella comes from Din Hava. Jobab comes from Basra. Husham comes from the land of the Temanites. Hadad, son of Bedad, comes from Avit. Samla comes from Masrakah. Just like in the book of Judges, the different judges come from different towns and different tribes, and they're not dynastic. We have some type of an elective kingship rather than a dynastic kingship. It's more than Israel has in Judges. They're not called judges here. They would have been if they were exactly similar. But they're somewhat like the judges in that there's not a dynasty. They come from different places. Now there are eight kings. That's always significant. If Hadar is the Hadad who broke from Solomon, we have seven kings and then Israelite rule and then a rebirth of Edom. So we would have seven kings, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then David conquers them. And this Sabbath, this week, this line comes to an end and is buried. And while David is king, Edom is buried down in Egypt while Hadad grows up. And then Solomon comes to the throne. And after about 23 or so years, 
Edom comes back to life again with Hadad, who is number eight, and starts a new cycle of kings. You see how the numerology works out? You have a nice week. The week comes to an end. Edom goes down to Egypt. They come back again while David and Solomon are on the throne. So we can sketch out a history from this and link it in with the history of Israel. Now, I've given you a complete chronology here, which you can look at on your own. But just to survey it, it's only a guess. We've already had one guess that Hadar is the same as Hadad. And so that in itself is something of a guess, although there's good reason to believe it. We can't be sure about it. We can say these things. While Israel was ruled by judges from various tribes, Edom was ruled by kings from various cities. Cities are a later development in history than villages. Edom already has cities while Israel still has villages. Edom has kings while Israel still has judges. It's the same period of time. There are probably gaps in the Edomite king list because Numbers 20 verse 14 indicates that there was a king in Edom when Moses requested to travel through it. A list of seven plus an eighth might also imply gaps. What am I saying here? Well... Between the time of the Exodus and the 20th year of Solomon here is nearly 500 years. Well, eight kings isn't going to cover 500 years. Moses encountered a king in Edom in numbers. It says he sent to the king of Edom, and the king of Edom says, no, you can't go through my territory. So they already had kings when Israel was just a rabble coming out of Egypt. So this business of Edomites getting there first is definitely there, and it's mentioned in numbers too. But unless these kings each reigned about 80 or 90 years, seven kings is not going to span 500 years. So there are gaps, and it doesn't matter. It's not a genealogy. We're just told this king, and then when so-and-so died, the next king became king in his stead. There may have been some other people in between. It's not the language can mean that, and so there could be gaps in here. Maybe not. Maybe Bela is just a king who starts up in the middle of the judges period, and we're not told the kings who came before. But we're told seven kings, and that's the really important thing here. Another thing we can see here in verse 38, if Hadar is the Hadad who rebels against Solomon, then the king who came before him was Baal-Hanan, and Baal-Hanan would have been the king defeated by David. Verse 38, the king probably defeated by David was Baal-Hanan, which means Baal is gracious. The father of Hadad fled to Egypt, and Hadad was reared there. Well, the king before him was named Saul. Fox translates as Shaul, but it's exactly the same name, spelled exactly the same way. If I put it out here in Hebrew, chicken scratch, it would look exactly the same. The king just before Baal-Hanan, who ruled while Saul ruled in Israel, is also named Saul. So he had a Saul over Edom at the same time he had a Saul over Israel, probably. Hadad, Hadar's wife is named, and while the wives of the judges of Israel are not named, as with Edom's first seven kings, the wives of the kings of Israel and Judah are always named. So that's something I've mentioned earlier. And then I've got this down here for you. Assuming some gaps in the list, we can link the kings of Edom with the history of Israel as follows. And these are Anomundi dates from creation forward. It's the easiest way to do it out. And it's interesting. Another possible link is in verse 35. Gideon's judgeship begins when Gideon defeats the Midianites. Well, 
we're told in verse 35 here, when Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, became king in his stead, who struck Midian in the territory of Moab. Well, again, why are we told that? There were wars going on among these nations for this whole 500-year span of time. Why is this singled out? Well, possibly because this is the time of Gideon. Gideon defeats the Midianites and the Moabites in his battle, and then he goes home. It would be typical of Edom to move in at that point and conquer them. That's what they routinely did. After somebody was defeated, after the Egyptians were defeated, who showed up to take over Egypt? The Amalekites, and they are Edomites. What does the psalm say? That when the enemy conquered Jerusalem, the Edomites would show up afterwards as carpetbaggers to take advantage of the situation. And that probably is hinted at here. It's only a hint. Can't be sure. But we're told it for some reason. And so I would link this man with the time of Gideon. And that would provide us a little bit of a peg in the chronology. And then you can kind of see how the situation ends between 29.10 and 29.50, Saul was over Israel. And if I'm right, there was another Saul over Edom. From 29.50 to 90, David was over Israel. Baal Hanan was over Edom. And then he's defeated and David was over Edom. 29.90 to 30.30, Solomon was over Israel and Edom. And then Hadad rebelled and became king over Edom. That seems to be how it ends. The bottom line is there were kings... In Edom, before there were kings in Israel, Edom gets there first, but David conquers them. The kingdom of God comes last. And then finally, verses 40 to the end, and again we have the final statement indicates another break. These are the names of the chiefs or sheikdoms from Esau, according to their clans, according to their sheikdoms, according to their local places. By their names. Sheik Temna, Sheik Alvin, Sheik Yetet, Sheik Aholibama, Sheik Ella, Sheik Pinon, Sheik Kenaz, Sheik Teman, Sheik Mitzvah, and Sheik Magdael, Sheik Iram. These are the sheikdoms of Edom according to their settlements in the land of their holdings. That is Esau, the tribal father of Edom. So again, we have a statement at the end that indicates a break. Well, now, these are a completely different list of sheiks than the ones we saw earlier. So, this is not the same time in history. There are only 11 of them listed, unlike the 14 that were listed above that we looked at half an hour ago. The names are mostly different. This indicates to me and to many others that these are the divisions in Edom after Hadar or Hadad became king, and thus probably after Edom broke free from Solomon. So, we are told here, we've broken free from Solomon, we're right, Hadar is now king, and now Esau is reconstituted as a nation, and these are now the clans or the sheikdoms, the subgroups, the tribes within Esau, and there are now 11 of them after the experience that they've been through. All of that is dependent, of course, on comparing it with later history of Israel. But what we do have here is kind of a whole history. Sons, conquest, kings... All of that before any of that happened in Israel, because Esau gets there first, but Esau doesn't last. And what Esau does is a counterfeit of what Israel does. Well, that concludes the Jacob narrative. We've started at the beginning of the Jacob narrative chiasm, and we've come to the end of it. 
At the beginning of it was the families of Ishmael. At the end of it here is the families of Esau. But we're not done with the life of Jacob because Jacob doesn't die until the end of Genesis. So if we're going to do the life of Jacob, we must now move into the Joseph narrative, which is another chiasm and runs from chapters 37 to 50. And to that we will turn next week. And we'll look at Joseph and Judah as sons of Jacob. Jacob has made a great failure at the end of his life. He failed to keep the idols away from his sons. And his sons became wicked as a result. Joseph has to come as a substitute for Jacob. For Jacob's mistake, just as Jacob had to make up for Isaac's mistake. And Joseph is going to be the one who redeems the sons of Jacob and who stands in his stead. So those are themes we'll start to look at next week. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.